Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. I'm Steve Hellman, Managing Partner at Mobility Impact Partners, and I welcome you to today's debate. Those of you who know Mobility Impact Partners understand that we work as a coalition of mobility stakeholders, uh, automotive and trucking companies and tier one suppliers, electric utilities, telecoms operators, finance, insurance, oil and gas companies, fleets, freight, logistics, all stakeholders in the mobility ecosystem, as well as major cities and municipalities, pursuing common challenges, finding solutions to those challenges, investing in those solutions, and then bringing those solutions back to the operating businesses of our partners. Some of our partners have encouraged us to provide a forum for public policy discourse. And so we decided to experiment with something altogether too rare these days, a formal debate between very different approaches to an important policy question. We teamed up with Bain, Credit Suisse, the Brattle Group, the Autotech Council, the Zero Emissions Transportation Association at UC Davis, and the Edison Electric Institute with guidance from the American Debate League to create today's program. The resolution for today's debate is that, quote, the government has an important and direct role in promoting electric vehicles, unquote. Arguing pro will be Professor Costa Samaras of Carnegie Mellon, and con will be David Rapson of UC Davis. The debate will be moderated by Dan Levy of Credit Suisse. All of you will have seen the poll question on your screen that we request you answer now if you haven't already done so. We will also ask you some questions at the end of the debate, at which time we will share the results with you. The debate is on the record and members of the media are free to use the material. Okay then, handing it over to you, Dan. Thank you, Stephen. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening, everyone. Uh, and thank you for joining. I'm Dan Levy. I lead research coverage of the US auto sector at Credit Suisse and I'm very pleased to be moderating this debate. Uh, I think it should promise to be very rich and engaging and hopefully by, by the end of the session, we'll all walk away with some better perspective on the topic of direct government involvement uh, in promoting electric vehicles, which I think we all know is a very topical item given the key mega trends of vehicle electrification and decarbonization. Uh, I'd like to quickly walk you through the structure of the event, which is on this slide. And you'll find here the debate structure. We'll open with six minute opening statements for each of the debaters. The next segment will be a crossfire in which the debaters will have the opportunity to ask each other two questions. Following that will be the rebuttal segment in which the debaters will have provide three minute rebuttal statements. Then we'll move to the Q&A portion, which will be led by our expert panel. And then we'll wrap up with closing statements by the debaters. All of this should last roughly one hour. Um, so with that, I'd like to introduce you to our debaters. As Steve mentioned, taking the pro side of the debate and arguing for direct government support of electric vehicles will be Professor Costa Samaras, uh, who is an associate professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. His research spans energy, climate change, automation, and defense analysis. And taking the con side of the debate and arguing against direct government support of electric vehicles will be Professor David Rapson, who's an associate professor in the Department of Economics at UC Davis. His research focuses on energy and environmental economics. Both are really noted researchers in their fields, thus it really should promise to be a very rich and engaging and enlightening debate. And with that, let's kick it off. Professor Samaras, I would like to invite you to provide your opening statement arguing for direct government support of electric vehicles. You have six minutes. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan, uh, and to Mobility Impact Partners and Bain and all of the partners for engaging in this exciting debate and to my debate partner, Professor David Rapson. Okay, when the government provides a tax credit or special tax treatment for something, it's equivalent to us, the government, writing a check for that item. This is a tax expense. It's a tax expenditure. It's because we, through the government, want more of that item than the market is delivering. Things like education, things like childcare, home ownership, and yes, green technologies. So when the government started to provide generous tax credits for electrified vehicles back in 2008 and early 2009, battery costs were ridiculously high and driving ranges of electric vehicles were not competitive at all. The first Nissan Leaf, Chevy Volt, 
and Tesla Roadster were introduced a little bit after that. Through the tax credits and other incentives from the federal and state governments, the governments pulled these and other EVs to the marketplace. The tax credit continued and a few first adopters were buying plug-in vehicles. And then some other companies entered the market and the vehicle selection grew. And all of these companies learned as sales and volumes increased. And now all these sales are still comparatively very low, but they started to grow. Next slide, please. And now here we are a decade plus later and battery prices have now dropped nearly 90% and EV driving range can regularly exceed 200 miles on a single charge. But now is not the time to quit because plug-in sales are still only a few percent of US and global annual auto sales. Continued and increased direct support of electric vehicles from governments is required and I'm gonna tell you why. Next slide, please. We should, through policy, internalize the environmental damages from energy technologies so that the prices that we face holistically represent the true cost to society. So an easy way to remember the impacts of a carbon tax is that for every dollar per metric ton of CO2 in tax, about one penny would be added to the price of gasoline. And that's if all of the costs are shifted down to the consumer. And so theoretically, this would change our behavior when we face a higher price at the pump. But I want you to think back to March of 2005, a long time ago, um, but still March 2005, gasoline prices were around $2 per gallon, and then they started rising. And three years later, in July of 2008, gas prices averaged more than $4 per gallon. Now the difference in price over a reasonable time horizon in effect represented a carbon tax of $200 per ton. Did you all run out and trade in your SUV for a Prius in July of 2008? The price signal shifted some decisions, but not enough. Next slide, please. Consumers are not making rational asset valuation decisions based off of <clears throat> discounted cash flow models, me included, and I do this for a living. The fuel costs to operate an electric vehicle are already cheaper uh, than operating most gasoline cars. And that is before we internalize the very, very large cost of air pollution and climate change, not to mention the cost of crashes and congestion that result from all types of cars. Then there is an equity issue with internalizing the true cost. Until we have made systemic changes in the tax code and robust investments in public transit, adding a dollar or two or three per gallon in pollution costs to represent the true cost will burden low-income households who already disproportionately are burdened by pollution costs and structural racism and infrastructure and already have to spend a large portion of their income on mobility. Next slide, please. Here's the thing about pollution though. All right, conventional air pollutants like sulfur dioxide from a smokestack at a coal plant, those pollutants fall out of the atmosphere soon after the smokestack turns off. But CO2 stays in the atmosphere for hundreds to even thousands of years after that coal smokestack turns off. On our timescales, that is permanent. And we should have started reducing emissions earlier, but we did not. We do not have the luxury of time and CO2 is not like a conventional pollutant. Next slide, please. The government also has a direct role in building charging station infrastructure, just like it did in electrifying rural America in the 1930s. It is simply not going to be profitable enough to overbuild the amount of charging stations needed to jumpstart the EV market in all parts of the country. Then there are the network effects of more EVs on the road and more charging stations available increase the benefits to everyone. EVs will get cleaner as the grid gets cleaner over time. And we have to think about that as we make policy and make investments now for things that get better over time. 
a gasoline car will get dirtier over time as the engine and the components start to lose efficiency. Next slide, please. Finally, cars are not like phones. Cars last a long time and the average age of a car is 12 years old. Many cars are on the road for more than 20 years, sometimes up to 30 years. Cars that get sold this year will be on the road in 2040 or even 2050. We do not have time to wait for the market alone to turn over this fleet. We, through the government, want more EVs right now. Next slide, please. You're at uh, we, time, Professor Samaras, or uh, you finish, uh, finish comments. That's it, I can finish out here. We need a direct role to play uh, from the government in facilitating our low carbon transition. Uh, thank you very much. And I look forward to Professor Rapson's comments. Great, thank you very much, Professor Samaras. Okay, uh, Professor Rapson, I'd like to invite you to provide your opening remarks arguing against direct government support of electric vehicles. You have six minutes, please go ahead. Thank you very much. I also would like to echo my appreciation to the organizers and also the honor it is to be sharing the stage with Professor Samaras. So the debate organizers have asked me to present an argument against direct promotion of the EV industry. Next slide, please. So the question is whether direct support of the EV industry is the best or even a useful way to combat climate change. Why are we even talking about EV policy? Well, the ultimate goal is to solve climate change. That's what it's all about. And the battle against climate change will be a decades long marathon that will require many course corrections as we learn and as we innovate. So what is the appropriate role for government here? Well, doing nothing is reckless, so we're not gonna spend any time on that. But what about direct support? So what do we mean by that? Subsidies, bans, and mandates this amounts to the government picking winners. And I'm gonna show you that this strategy exposes us to unacceptable risks. We're much more likely to succeed if we keep our options open and set incentives to allow consumers and businesses to guide us to the best solutions. Flexible solutions that address pollution and not technology are gonna be less expensive and resilient to new information and technologies as we learn. Next slide, please. So there are many different ways to reduce transportation emissions, and we genuinely do not know the right answer yet. When it comes to transportation, EVs could very well be one of the key tools for solving climate change, but are they the only right answer? Neither I nor anybody else really knows. Other options might be essential. Low carbon gasoline cars, hydrogen cars, cellulosic ethanol, it might become necessary or advantageous to directly suck carbon out of the atmosphere. We might also innovate. Future amazing technologies might arise that could be beneficial. And we might also want to provide incentives to reorganize our cities so that we don't need as much transportation services. So the question is, do we bet the farm on EVs? And I'm going to give you some reasons why we should worry about this path. Or do we set up a suite of policies that harnesses the ingenuity, scientific expertise, and entrepreneurial spirit of the American people that allow the best solution to emerge? So let's take a look at some of the pitfalls of direct government support. Next slide, please. Charging electric vehicles with coal electricity undermines the main goal, which is pollution reduction. But as you can see from this map, the grid in most of the country, and particularly in the Midwest, is still very dirty. Decarbonizing electricity is happening at different rates and in different places. We can see that on the West Coast, things are looking pretty good. And good government policy is going to acknowledge this. It's going to promote electric vehicle adoption in the right places and at the right times. And direct government policies like a nationwide EV subsidy is gonna bungle this. It's not gonna get the when right and it's not gonna get the where right. This is not only unfair, but is damaging to the environment and to public health. Next slide, please. Okay, so I know this may not be popular to say out loud, but people don't seem to like EVs very much. You can see in this graph here that when Georgia removed their EV tax credit in 2015, the demand for electric vehicles fell off a cliff. 
In California, the government has had to pay 15 to $25,000 in subsidies for each incremental EV purchase. That's a lot of money. And if we scale that nationwide, it will cost hundreds of billions of dollars to convert just an additional 10% of drivers to EVs nationwide. Next slide, please. Finally, I just wanna identify some unintended consequences that we know are going to happen if we subsidize EVs. So remember, the ultimate goal here is solving climate change. So we don't wanna do things that increase emissions. Well, what increases emissions? Making cars and driving them using fossil fuels. So what do subsidies do for EVs? They put more cars on the road. They fail to reduce driving in gasoline cars. They promote driving EVs in areas with coal electricity. And they make older gasoline cars scarce, which makes them more valuable and people don't scrap them as much. Subsidies for EVs are also ultimately, if successful, going to drive down the price of oil worldwide. And this makes using oil in developing countries much more appealing. This is a global problem. So we want to care about these sorts of global effects that are predictable, even if unintended. Next slide, please. So again, the question is whether direct government support of the EV industry is the best or even a useful way to combat climate change. And the best evidence we have so far really forces me uh, to question whether direct EV policies will go nearly far enough. Also, things are changing so quickly. EVs are currently just less than 1% of the vehicle fleet. I feel like going all in on EVs is putting all our eggs in one basket while we're still making the basket. Okay, so thankfully though, there's a better alternative here. And that is to put a price on solution, uh, sorry, price on pollution and let individual and firm decisions guide us to the right technologies. The most important thing to do is to set the right incentives and none of the direct EV policies be being considered does that today. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Professor Rapson. Let's move on to the next portion of the debate, which will be the crossfire where Professor Samaris and Professor Raston will each have the opportunity to pose each other two questions and each debater will have 90 seconds to respond to that question. So with that, Professor Samaris, I'd like you to, uh, to invite you to ask two questions to Professor Rapson. Please go ahead. Uh, and there's 90 second response for each question. Thank you so much. Professor Rapson, uh, I agree that our incentives should be flexible and we should set uh, priorities to deal with uncertainty. But the market has provided a path now and we have been researching fuel cells, biofuels and EVs since the 1990s. When should we uh, go all in on a technology um, that is available to us? Well, Professor Samaras asks a really great question. When should we go all in? And the, the answer is, I think we really want to keep our options open for quite a long time. Once it's abundantly clear that this is the winning technology, um, then perhaps at the end, you know, after most people have acknowledged through their demonstrated behavior, through buying electric vehicles and enjoying that experience, then maybe you mandate the rest of uh, the rest of the population to go to that technology. But I think the appropriate time to do that is when EVs are 80 or 90%, when they're overwhelmingly demonstrated as being superior. And that simply is, is, we're nowhere near that being the case yet today. Fewer than 1% of cars or EVs we still have not completed the transition to, or you know, we're even very early in the transition to a renewable electricity grid that doesn't rely heavily on fossil fuels. We still get the majority of our electricity from fossil fuels. So it's just way too early to go all in on EVs. Great. And so Dan, I'm asking one more question to David. One more, yep. Okay. Um, uh, David, you said something really interesting that I agree with very much, which is we have to think about orga organizing our cities so that we won't need as many 
uh, you know, as much vehicle mobility. What would be, what would be the federal role in doing that? Um, and, and how can that be a substitute for the federal tools that the government has available to it right now? Yeah, well, that's a really great question as, as well, Professor Samara. So, um, I mean, I think the, the main observation that I have around the government's role is it's going to be really hard to achieve anything that we want to achieve through carrots alone. There have to be some sticks. We need to increase the cost of using polluting energy. And so pricing pollution appropriately is absolutely essential. And I think that is the appropriate goal of the federal government. I realize that in the United States today, this is politically infeasible, but the work for us is to come together and really figure out how to make it feasible. It's been effective in Europe, it's effective in Canada, it has to become effective in the US if we're going to solve this problem. And I think putting a price on, on pollution would help to guide the decisions around how to organize as cities, how to guide the decisions about which of those, those transportation emissions technologies to pursue and how hard. These are decisions that the government is not well suited to make. Nobody really knows the answers to these questions. We have to set up the right incentives and allow firm and individual decisions to guide us over the, over the coming decades. Great, thank you, thank you very much. Now let's flip it. Professor Rapson, you now have the opportunity to ask two questions to Professor Samaras, 90 second responses. Please go ahead. Thank you, Dan. So there are several risks that we know are risks now with EVs. Battery costs need to continue to come down. We need to procure raw materials for the batteries. There needs to be genuine consumer enthusiasm for EVs, which we have not achieved yet. There has to be a decarbonized electricity grid and electricity reliability under that grid. And how do we serve the large portion of the country that doesn't have a garage or a car park? So all of these have to work to get to 100% EVs. And my question to you is, what is your backup plan if one of those fails? Thank you so much, Professor Rapson. So I'll address a few of these in turn. Um, there is a large bench of first adopters, second adopters, fifth adopters in the United States that have access to a garage or carport. More than 60% of households have a garage or carport. More, an additional 30% of households have uh, access to off-street parking. And then the remaining 10% have neither. That's concentrated in the Northeast where we have older cities. But there are plenty of first adopters that can be, especially ones that are commuting and don't have access to uh, robust public transportation systems, um, that we can flip from a gasoline engine that gets 25 mpg or 30 mpg to a, an electric vehicle that will get much more energy efficient um, per, per mile, energy efficiency per mile. But also, this is, leads me to the second point, taking advantage of a continually decarbonizing grid. You, you mentioned in the slides about um, the different damages from uh, fossil grids around the country, and that is important. I, I don't think that the general public have a good sense of how fast the grid has changed since 2001 and even since 2015. Um, the grid has reduced CO2 emissions by 37% per kilowatt hour since 2001. There's also been a big change even just since 2015. 17% of, of, of the grid has reduced CO2 emissions per megawatt hour by 17% as a nation, and even in the coal heavy areas of the Midwest. Um, so the grid has changed. The market has chosen natural gas and renewables over coal, and that will continue to accelerate as the grid changes. The uh, original question, I know we're bumping up on time, um, is... I believe that we have plenty of time to make mistakes by overbuilding some EVs now. And if better technology comes along later, uh, then we can course correct at that time. But we shouldn't wait from, uh, until that technology comes along later because then we'll be perpetually waiting. Great, your second question. Okay, so my second question is, 
It relates to the costs and benefits of abating, of reducing pollution. So the social cost of carbon reflects the benefit of reducing a ton of carbon dioxide. Under Obama, it was $50. It probably should be $100 or more. Uh, and there are technologies in their development stages now that suck carbon out of the atmosphere for a few hundred dollars per ton. And these costs are coming down as well. Would you agree that these put a cap on how much we should be willing to pay for greenhouse gas reductions via electric vehicles? This is a really important um, discussion and I thank you for raising it. Uh, the ability for negative emissions technologies, technologies that suck carbon out of the air and uh, store it somewhere, uh, it is super important to research and to develop. And many, uh, many companies are in the space now, including many of our colleagues. The we should continue to investigate those. We, there's still not a guaranteed pathway that those technologies can arrive and store gigatons of CO2 at scale for the types of costs that we're thinking about now. So I think a, a plan would be to advance elect vehicle electrification and other ways to decarbonize the transportation system, and then use the eventual arrival of a negative emissions technology as a pleasant surprise, rather than betting the entire farm, as it were, on the arrival of negative emissions technologies sometime in the future because they have their own cost benefits, uh, externalities, equity issues, and, and technology problems. So absolutely, we should be thinking about um, innovation to reduce CO2 and to capture and store CO2, but they only are a price cap on the social cost of carbon if they can deliver gigaton carbon storage. Great, thank you. Okay, let's move to the rebuttal portion of the debate where each of the debaters will have an opportunity to provide a three minute rebuttal statement. Professor Samaras, I'd like to invite you to start first. You have three minutes, please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, and Professor Rapson said a lot of important points that I agree with. Uh, the notion that we need to price carbon and price pollution and provide incentives and provide opportunities for innovation, provide opportunities for, uh, for choices. All of these are right. The challenge is that we, uh, we don't live in the world that enables those prices to arrive politically in any reasonable timeframe. So we could say in an, on paper, on our whiteboards, this is the optimal solution. Uh, the optimal solution is to, is to uh, price damages uh, and allow the market to react to those damages. And then uh, we, we have a hands-off approach so that we arrive at the choices that we want to get to. The, the challenge is we, we haven't made electricity and energy policy like that. And we probably won't be doing that. Uh, we have a combination of pricing, so we should add some prices, as well as standards, subsidies, and regulation. And as long as we live in that world, we still have the physical infrastructure problem of turning over the vehicle fleet from now to the middle of the century. And we have 250 million cars and SUVs on the road. It will take 20 to 30 years for those to switch over to even the newest vehicles on the road. We will need government intervention, either through prices or through subsidy to accelerate the amount of EVs that we have on the road. Uh, and until we, I, until we live in the first best world of pricing, we're gonna have to go to the second, the third, or the ninth best world of direct subsidy. Great, thank you very much, Professor Rapson. You now have the opportunity to provide a rebuttal statement. You have three minutes, please go ahead. Thank you very much. Well, I, I have to also echo that I think there are so many areas on which Professor Samaras and I agree. Um, the problem is one of enormous magnitude. There is a role for government 
And without government intervention, this is going to be uh, a, a pretty much impossible task um, for the economy to, to transition in the way that we really need it to. But where we disagree is on the amount of faith that we should place in direct government support, as opposed to other uh, more flexible strategies. And I am really worried that if we go down the road of direct government support, that we're gonna find ourselves in a really much worse place later on than if we had instead held out and advocated and worked with people across the aisle and with our fellow citizens to figure out a way to move towards the solution that we all agree would work, which is to put a price on carbon. Now, I wanna also just touch on a couple things that confuse me about Professor Samaris's argument. So there's an enormous market opportunity for electric vehicles here. Firms are obviously rewarded handsomely in their stock valuation for success in this area. And these incentives for profitable innovation are by far the most important incentives for investing in the EV transition. And it seems like, I, I agree that costs have come down, that there are many attributes of EVs that are advantageous, but if EVs are so great and the market is actually rewarding success, why does the industry need direct government handouts that we know are also going to be creating incentives that are acting in the opposite direction. I wanna to touch briefly on charging infrastructure as well. I think the, the case for public investment in charging infrastructure, infrastructure is odd. So Professor Samaris himself said that they're expensive, charging stations are expensive, rarely used and necessary. This to uh, an economist seems contradictory. The fact that they're rarely used signals that we probably have too many of them. And it's maybe true that if we um, are at 100% EVs, we're gonna see a lot more, more charging stations, but the market can figure that out. There's no clear market failure in providing charging station infrastructure. And there's also a lot of reasons to doubt the government's ability to put these stations in the right place today where they obviously are not needed as much because they're not being used, or in places where they're gonna be needed in the future. So, you know, I share the feeling of urgency around climate change, but we're very early in the decarbonization game. And I agree, I wish we had started sooner. EVs may be a really important part of the solution, but it feels like we're trying to throw a Hail Mary pass before we really need to. If, these are actually, if EVs actually are the winner, then they don't need government support. And if they're not the winner, then we need to pursue policies that show us what is gonna be the winner. So direct right. government support is not the answer. Right. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Professor Rapson. Okay, let's move to the next segment of the debate, which is the panel Q&A. We have a panel of five industry experts who will each have the opportunity to pose a question to each of the panelists. And the panelists will each have a one-minute uh, response time to each question. So with that, I'd like to invite our first panelist, Tom Went, who is a partner at Bain and a leader in Bain's tech and automotive practices. Tom, go ahead. You can ask a question to each Professor Samaris and Professor Rapson. Hey, yeah. Thank you, Dan. Good morning, everybody. Um, uh, thank you very much for, for your great presentations. Really enjoyed listening um, to them. Um, first question is to uh, uh, Professor Samaris. Um, so in, in your argument for direct government support, um, you are addressing the economics and, and, and customer behavior um, only, only briefly. Um, both will, in our opinion, play a significant role um, when it comes to driving EV adoption. Um, so you mentioned that EVs are already cheaper today than they are, and I think uh, than, than gas engines are, and, and I think this is this is only true when, when you look at total cost of ownership, so over the entire life cycle. But in addition, if you believe in, in the experience curves, um, you would have to believe the battery pack costs will drop below $100, kilowatt, uh, $100 per kilowatt hour, or even $80 per kilowatt hour by 2025. 
um, which then will lead to purchase price parity, which means the sticker price of gas cars and, um, and electric cars will really be the same. Um, and at the same time, we are seeing, you know, increased uh, willingness of consumers to really consider buying their cars. For example, in China, uh, more than 70% are considering to buy an EV uh, in the next purchase. In the US, it's 30%. So considering all this, do you still believe that continuous government support is really necessary um, for the adoption of EVs? Or better ask, when should it actually end? Thank you so much, Tom. The challenge is that consumers are taking huge financial risks with a vehicle. It's either the first or the second most expensive asset that most consumers are going to own after a home. And a new technology like electrification represents the unfamiliar and it represents a risk about charging it represents a risk around the warranty and the battery and how the, the availability of the technology to be maintained. And so consumers, again, are not rational and they are going to need the government to pull to market um, a bigger part of the experience curve. I believe you asked, when should it end? Uh, when, we, uh, when we incorporate the externalities of carbon and, and pollution, uh, the government should still be willing to pull consumers to market at price parity and beyond. And because of the timing issue, I think it's worthwhile to ask the question, even when we start ramping up the experience curve, there will still be a direct role for government to uh, kind of push on this market to, to ramp up that faster. Okay, thank you. Um, Professor Epson, um, you're making the argument to not target technologies with direct subsidies. Uh, <clears throat> now, if I look to Europe and if I look specifically to Norway, which I think is, is really a pioneer and, and a great example on, on, on this front, this is exactly what they did. So the adoption of EVs has been driven by, by policy and, and, and actively supported by the government since I think back in the 90s. Um, in addition to non-monetary incentives, all electric vehicles are exempt from non-recurring vehicle fees, including the, the, the VAT um, taxes um, and other taxes. So they have then gradually phased out some of those incentives. And I think as of 2020, um, electric car owners are, for example, required to pay full rates um, on, on their VAT taxes. Um, and still 55% of all vehicles registered in Norway were fully electric in 2020. So, you know, I mean, looking at this example, this policy is, 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 is clearly working. Um, and I wonder, what do you think the reason is why it doesn't or shouldn't in the United States or anywhere else in the world? Hi, Tom. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I've thought a lot about Norway. So they're in a very different situation than the United States is for a couple of different reasons. Um, they have 98% renewable electricity, 98%, mostly from hydro. And so it makes a lot of sense to the benefits of, of EVs in Norway are a lot higher on the margin than they are in the United States. So it makes much more sense to have a lot of EVs in Norway. The incentive structure that they set up though, I would argue is more high taxes on gasoline vehicles, right? It's more stick than it is carrot. They're not directly subsidizing EVs. They're just not taxing them like they tax gasoline cars. And I think that that is heading in the right direction. We need to raise the price of engaging in polluting activity. And that's exactly what they were doing. One of the other things that makes it possible for them to forego tax revenue on cars is that they have a $1.1 trillion sovereign wealth fund that primarily came from the sale of petroleum. So, I mean, it's a very interesting case study. I do think we learn some things from Norway, but the US is in a different position. And I, I don't think that Norway argues uh, in favor of support for, uh, for EV subsidies in the United States. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Rapson. Thank you, Tom. And by the way, to your point, this gets to, you know, the tidbit of at one point in Norway, the price of the Tesla Model S was the same as like the price of a VW Passat. So there you go. 
Uh, great. Thanks, Tom. Next, I'd like to invite Liz Curtin, who's the co-founder of the Autotech Council, to ask a couple of questions. Liz, please go ahead. You're on mute. There you go. Making sure you can hear me all right. Everyone can hear me? Okay, great. Um, so my background, uh, the Autotech Council, we connect the major uh, vendors, car makers, suppliers in the automotive and mobility industry with the new ideas and the new technologies and the startups. So that's kind of my perspective here. My uh, first question for Professor Samaras would be, we have, if I'm looking at the trends on the entrepreneur side and the startup side, they've kind of moved on from straight EV and now they're going down the, what we could say down the stack into smart cities, uh, connected transportation, last mile mobility solutions. Um, and if we go with the argument that we've done a good job with subsidy, uh, the EV market specifically for single use, single family cars, do you recommend that we push those down the stack into the rest, into what comes next? So connected cities, smart cities, urban mobility. Absolutely. Um, I think that mobility is not just about cars. And if we've been willing to subsidize electric vehicles at a $7,500 tax credit, we should at the very least be able to uh, enable people to buy electric bicycles uh, for cheaper than the market currently allows them to, to be purchased for, uh, as well as the investment in um, micromobility um, and, and other innovative solutions that get people to have to move more while driving less in a solo vehicle. Um, and I think that we have to, when we think about, this was a, a debate around electric vehicles, but I think that we can broaden electric vehicles to mean electric mobility. Um, and I think that there's a direct government uh, role to encouraging more electric mobility, um, especially in, in e-bikes. Right, um, thank you. And Professor Rapson, a question for you. Again, from my perspective and being led into the future by the startups and the, and the entrepreneurs that we see, I, I agree with you that entrepreneurial spirit is gonna get us where we need to go. Um, I, I also see a, a major hurdle in putting tax on pollution. We've tried in America many different ways and uh, given that it's almost an insurmountable task, looking at the subsidy side of things uh, seems like a more uh, effective way to do it. I did look at your data on Georgia, and um, if you look past past where you stopped your data, the pickup in in purchases of EVs actually does flatten out. So there is a spike right before they they uh, finish that tax credit, but then people did start uh, picking up EVs again. So that that was an interesting uh, piece. But really, the the, the change that I'm seeing, again, from the entrepreneurial side is right now on the charging stations and, the, and a lot of new startups and a, not, a lot of new technology. In fact, I think a day or two ago, some utilities, a couple of three utilities got together and said, we're going to do a, a big rollout of charging stations. So I'm, I'm wondering if you, if you think that this, if we move the subsidies away from individual ownership of cars and into more of the infrastructure, if that would be a better use of these subsidies dollars? Well, first, uh, that, that's a really great question, Liz. I just wanna mention Georgia for a second. So you're absolutely right that the adoption picked up a little bit over time, but EVs in Georgia still are less than 1% of the fleet. So it's not really like there's been a sea change there at all. Um, it just, you know, there's a pulse maybe, uh, as opposed to what happened after the removal of the tax credit. Um, I, I would not advocate for switching subsidies from consumer purchases to uh, EV infrastructure. And the reason is that, you know, when we think about how to best deploy scarce government resources, we want to do this to address market failures. And the main market failure in this market is pollution. There is not, as far as I can tell, any evidence that there's a market failure in EV charging infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, this seems to be a little bit of an urban myth that I hear all the time, but I've, I've never really seen any evidence of it. Um, there firms that want to build EV charging infrastructure, they, they do it. 
And as we can see, they're already overbuilt because they're not being used much. So no, I don't, I don't think we should subsidize EV infrastructure. Great. Thank you, Professor Epson, and thank you, Liz. Next, I'd like to invite Kellen Schefter, who's a director at the Edison Electric Institute. Kellen, please go ahead. Great. Thank you so much. And actually, uh, for P Professor Samaras, I'd like to pick up where uh, Professor Rapson just left off on that EV infrastructure question. You mentioned, I think, very clearly that a lot of the charging could occur at home or workplaces, places that aren't the traditional gasoline station model. So kind of getting at that market failure question, I think part of the issue here is that if you have a, a place to charge your car overnight, you're less likely to rely on some of the public uh, charging infrastructure out there. So are we thinking maybe about charging infrastructure wrong, not so much as a market failure, but maybe more of a public good model? This is something we need. And the throughput of electricity will be so low compared to, say, the value of like a, a liquid fuel that maybe it's better to think of this more in a public good model. Any response to that? Thank you, Kellen. I I agree that charging stations uh, are likely to be more like public infrastructure, and the the notion that they're uh, th that they're going to be making enough marginal revenue for charging somebody uh, you know a little bit more than they can charge at home uh, for electricity is is not going to provide the level of charging infrastructure required in order to induce this market to grow up along the experience curve. Norway provided a, a, a large in, increase in the amount of public infrastructure, charging infrastructure that they uh, rolled out in conjunction with a host of other policies, including the, the tax exclusion. I think that um, charging stations could be coupled with some, uh, some storage, potentially some, uh, some PV, and maybe they can provide some grid services. Maybe they can provide some other ancillary services um, to, to a community. However, in the end, this is something where most people are going to charge at home. There's lots of people who live in multifamily dwellings who don't have places to live, uh, charge uh, at home, and they're going to need places to charge. And I think that uh, we should be looking at this like public infrastructure rather than um, than opportunities, uh, rather than waiting for the market to provide the optimal number of, of, of uh, stations. Excellent. Thanks so much. And, and Professor Rapson, shifting back maybe just a little bit to uh, maybe the difference between the ideal versus the reality. In reality, I think the big driver we have for light duty uh, vehicles in the U.S. to reduce emissions is cafe standards, greenhouse gas standards on, on vehicles. Um, and I think we've seen how that's, that's worked. We've seen individual vehicles get more efficient, but at the same time, consumers shifted to more SUVs, more pickup trucks. The, the gross impact on emissions has kind of been washed out in, in some ways. So I feel like we're going to need consumer nudges um, or, like you said, maybe exceedingly higher prices on, on the traditional alternative. How, how, any recommendations you have, because this is a live debate right now, how to update the existing structure we have, fuel economy standards, to better reflect uh, the behavior we want to see from consumers? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I just I, on the public infrastructure question, I think we run a real risk here of kind of building a bridge to nowhere or the high speed rail debacle in California if we're building a whole bunch of charging infrastructure when it's not needed. So I, I, I really just feel like we have to pump the brakes on that. But, you know, I really like your question, Kellen, about consumer rationality and consumer decision-making. And Professor Samaras has mentioned a couple times here that consumers are not rational. This is really an outdated uh, interpretation of the academic evidence. So several papers have been written in the last 10 years examining the extent to which consumers respond to the incentives on the usage margin. So when gasoline prices are lower or if electricity prices are lower, how does that change the cost of travel in the future, which might allow them right, to, to pay more today if they're gonna make it up uh, in terms of the annuity over time. And there's lots of evidence now that consumers are very rational. Again, I think that back in the 90s, uh, there were papers written that kind of indicated that wasn't the case. But the richness of the data set and the empirical methods over the last couple decades have allowed much better research to be done in that area. And this idea that consumers are not responding to incentives rationally is, is just not correct. The evidence really speaks otherwise. 
Great. Thank you, Professor Rapson. And thank you, Kellen. An interesting point, by the way, on charging infrastructure. You're right. It's not just about the charging. It's also about the customer awareness. Okay, we're going to move on. Uh, thank you, Kellen. Uh, our, our, I'd like to invite Sanem Sergeje, who's a principal with the Brattle Group. We're a little tight on time. So Sanem, I'm just going to ask you if you could ask uh, one question to Professor Samaras, and then the next uh, panelist will ask a question to Professor uh, Rapson. So Sanem, please go ahead. Thank you. You're on mute. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, Professor Samaras, uh, uh, this this whole FTC uh, policies is really great interest of mine right now because we are with my team at Brattle looking at uh, several alternative FTC policies and trying to figure out which one is the more effective path forward. So my question to you is, do you think the current FTC policy is effective? If not, how would you revise it to get the most yield out of uh, a federal subsidy? Thank you so much, Dr. Sergizzi. Uh, you said the FTC policy? Federal I, tax credit. Federal tax credit policy. How should we revise it? Uh, I think that it's, it's possible that we could uh, target it better to middle and low income households uh, so that, and we also could make it refundable right now um, or, or previously it had not been refundable uh, that if you didn't have a tax liability exceeding the amount of the credit, then you would forfeit that amount. Uh, and that also tilts it towards high-income uh, earners right now. I also think that we can expand it to beyond electric vehicles to include electric, uh, other electric mobility uh, options, as, as we talked about, bicycles and scooters and, and, um, and other options. I, I don't know, uh, I'm, of a, I'm of two minds, right? So if, if we have a fixed pie of money, it's probably better to slice the credit in half and, and provide you know, more consumers half the benefit. But in a perfect world, we should be expanding these and really being get uh, enable low and middle income consumers who often have a household budget constraint. And so, even if they are rational, they 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 aren't able to take advantage of uh, financial instruments that are available to higher income um, owners. And so, I think really the next focus on uh, the federal tax credit should be refundability uh, and broadening. Great, great. Thank you, uh, Professor Samaris, and thank you, Sanem. Okay, and last but not least, I'd like to invite Dr. Kelly Fleming, who's a policy director with the Zero Emission Transportation Association. Uh, Kelly, please go ahead uh, and direct a question to Professor Rapson. Uh, thanks, Dan. Um, Dave, so my question is, uh, rather than pricing pollution, we've historically and currently still provide subsidies for fossil fuel development and for the technology that favors them, like combustion vehicles, highways, and um, oil and gas production. Um, and part of this was to ensure US competitiveness and innovation. Uh, another issue with pricing pollution alone could be that it's regressive and it, it disproportionately harms people who cannot necessarily afford newer vehicles and who don't have access to public transit. So why shouldn't we give clean technologies like EVs the same launching point by providing them with similar subsidies and investment that fossil fuel-based technologies have benefited from historically, including things like grid upgrades, renewables, um, and EV infrastructure, in addition to pricing pollution. Um, and a follow-up to that is, do you support rescinding those subsidies for oil and gas? Thanks, Dr. Fleming. That, that's, those are really great questions, and I absolutely support eliminating subsidies for fossil fuels without any hesitation. What I'm advocating for is adding taxes to these polluting fuels, and that is absolutely essential. I think it's crazy that there are still uh, subsidies um, for fossil energy, absolutely. Um, your second part of your question was about regressivity. And, you know, this is a really important question. It's not clear to me that EV subsidies are less regressive than carbon taxes or pollution taxes. Um, I think certainly to date, it's, it's quite clear that subsidies have gone, the vast majority have gone to the rich. Uh, Professor Samaris just articulated one of the reasons that the federal tax credit is even more regressive because it's, it's in the form of a uh, of a rebate, uh, of a credit, and it's, um, you know, if you don't have a high income, you might not be paying enough tax to avail yourself of it. So these issues of distributional concerns, I think, are very important. It's, it's just not clear to me 
that um, one of the policies is more or less regressive. I also think that there's a risk in trying to solve all of the distributional concerns that we have in society, which are very important through the EV market. I think, you know, we, to the extent that there's an appetite, as I think there should be, for taking care of low-income households in society, uh, the tax system is really uh, the best way to do that. Um, and I don't know, the debate could range into many other, you know, productive uses of government energy and resources around healthcare and things like that. But yeah, I, I'm just, it's, it's not clear to me cool. that, uh, that subsidies are any less regressive than carbon taxes. Great. Thank you, Professor Rapson, and thank you, Dr. Fleming. I know a lot of you uh, in the audience sent a lot of really great questions, unfortunately, running on time. So in the spirit of trying to keep this uh, close to an hour, we're going to move to the closing statement. I think there's probably a lot to unpack in a subsequent debate, uh, Stephen team. We hope you do a subsequent debate. So. Uh, so great. Let's move to the last portion. Professor Samaras, Professor Apson, you each have the opportunity to provide closing statements. You could try to keep it to 60 to 90 seconds. Professor Samaras, please go ahead. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful to Professor David Rapson um, for engaging with this debate. I learned a lot today and I hope everyone did. I think in the end, there is a, a rationale for direct government intervention for electric vehicles in the United States and around the world because of the outcomes that we have seen so far with pricing alone have not been able to generate the, uh, the types of uh, outcomes that we want. And even in Europe where the price of gasoline is tacked much higher than is priced here, uh, consumers are still driving many thousands of miles per year in, in, in gasoline vehicles. Uh, not as many as we are, but not uh, not enough, not a, enough of a reduction to make a meaningful dent into climate change. And so in the end, we will need government intervention in the form of direct subsidies to kickstart this market as we march up the experience curve. Thank you so much. Great. Great. Thank you, Professor Samaras. Professor Rapson, I'd like to invite you to make a closing statement. Thank you, Dan. Well, I, I really also appreciate having been invited here to take part in this debate. And um, Professor Samaras just makes really amazing points. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with him, frankly, and, and hopefully even doing some research with him in collaboration to try to solve these problems because they obviously are tricky. So in my closing remark, I just want to um, reflect on, on climate change as a problem. We often refer to it as a collective action problem. The solution requires working together with each other within our country and with our brothers and sisters abroad. And in the US, there's a real opportunity here to reset our politics with this issue. Americans want action on climate and the best policies, which are necessary, if perhaps not sufficient, are natural ones for Republicans to support. And we need to continue to do the hard work of bridging the partisan divide on this issue. Collective action problems cannot be solved unilaterally. And internationally, we need to remember that a successful EV transition will drive down the price of oil worldwide. This is a problem and it needs to be dealt with through market-based solutions and taxes where EV subsidies are gonna to contribute to that problem. Most emissions in the future are gonna come from low income developing countries and we'll need to export our solutions to them. And EVs are just not a great match for that goal. And, they, and EV subsidies are doing nothing to address low future fuel prices. So I think we need to zoom out in this debate and think about what it is we're actually trying to achieve and pursue the best policies and not give up on the best policies. We have to keep trying to do what we know is gonna work and we have to avoid policies that have a lot of problems with them, even if they're the best we can do today. Great. Thank you so much, Professor Samaras and Professor Rapson. Uh, you've really provided a lot of uh, core substance to this debate. And the beauty of it is that in the U.S., you know, EV penetration last year was all of 2%. So there's a really long runway. And I think there's a, a lot to, to come to unpack this debate. So thank you for your substance and your contribution. Uh, and with that, I'd like to hand it back to Steve Hellman. I'd also like to express my thanks to Steve and the rest of the team at Mobility Impact, the team at Bain for organizing this really insightful debate. Steve, over to you. 
Well, that wraps up the debate. Um, but um, clearly, based on what we've heard today and with the new administration in Washington, it's just the, the, be the beginning of the debate as a society. Um, at this time, you'll see the same poll question on your screen that we asked you um, to baseline the data before the debate started, and we request that you answer it again, obviously changing your response to the extent that your thinking has changed. And also, please let us know who you think won the day as far as the debate itself is concerned. You have about half a minute to respond, and then we'll display the results. I want to express sincere thanks to all of the participants who made this event possible, in particular, Costa and David, who put in considerable effort. Thanks also to Dan, um, to Amar Pradhan on our team, um, to Tom Wentz, Shannon Moore, and Kristen Bell at Bain, who made the event function seamlessly. And of course, the other panelists, Sanam, Kelly, um, Kellen, and Liz. And with a special shout out to the American Debate League for their advice on format. Finally, thanks to all of you for joining and pressing the debaters with your questions. We'll be sending out an email with a recording in the next few days and it will be available on our website. Um, in addition, we'd greatly appreciate any feedback on today's event. As I said at the beginning, this is a bit of an experiment in promoting civil intellectual public discourse around important policy issues associated with the revolution we're experiencing in the mobility sector. And we look forward to organizing similar events in the future. If you've enjoyed the event, if you didn't enjoy the event, and if you have ideas for improving it, your feedback will help us work to, towards better events in the future. On behalf of the team at Mobility Impact Partners, we wish you a pleasant morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are, stay healthy.